There's an old Jewish tradition that says there are two kinds of stories in the world. And this is true in daily life as well as in Bible. Two kinds of stories. Day stories and night stories. Day stories are what you would expect. They're lighter and brighter and sometimes funny. Day stories are what happens when someone at a family reunion tells a, a great old story from the years gone by and everyone laughs. Or in the Bible, when Jonah is swallowed by a whale. That's a day story, unless you're Jonah. Night stories, though, are different. They're darker. They're heavier. They're best told at night. You know, did you ever tell ghost stories around a fire at camp? That's night stories. Or Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac. That's a night story. Jacob wrestling at the river is a night story. Now, you may have skipped Sunday school like I did, you know, just for 10 or 15 years. Others of you may have actually gone. For those who didn't go, here's a kind of introduction, and for those who did, here's a refresher. He's one of Israel's three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name means trickster or conniver, but you could just as easily translate the Hebrew as jerk. Jacob is a jerk. The Bible says he's one of two twins, right, Jacob and Esau, that even in the womb he was tricking his brother, which is probably a little bit of exaggeration, but it did signal what was coming down the pike. When it's time to bestow a blessing upon the older, Jacob tricks his brother Esau, who's famished, and he gets the blessing. And many years later, when their dad Isaac is blind and dying and wants to pass on the family blessing, Jacob tricks his blind dad and takes the blessing that would have gone to Esau. Jacob, the jerk, only knows two ways to get along in the world. You make bargains and you cheat people. And, and sometimes he did both. He would make a bargain and then cheat you. In this case, many years later, Jacob, knowing the enmity that is between him and Esau, learns that Esau is coming and with 400 men. This does not bode well. He tries prayer, he tries bribes, and he prepares for war. He has no clue what's going to happen. And then out by the river Jabbok, which is Hebrew for wrestle, Jacob wrestles, probably with himself first, but wondering what will happen. He sends his family across the river, I'm not sure if that's to protect them or to offer them up as a bribe. And then he waits. And suddenly, someone jumps him. It's dark. He can't tell who. Probably one of Esau's men come to assassinate him, take him captive, something. But, but the two of them wrestle, and one prevails, and then the other. And this goes on through the night, wrestling in the wet mud. And then, just as the first rays of day start to break, the stranger decides it's time to end this. He pulls Jacob up over his knees, pops him until his hip comes out of its socket, and poor Jacob screams, and over the screams, the stranger says, let me go, for the day is now breaking. 
and he's in no position to bargain. But this is Jacob, and so he says, well, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And the man says, well, what's your name? And with a mouthful of mud, he says, Yaakov, Jacob, the jerk. And the man says, not anymore. Your name now is Yisrael, Israel, because you have wrestled with God and humans, and you have prevailed. And then Jacob, always wanting one more leg up, says, well, tell me your name. And the man withholds the name, but he blesses Jacob. And that's how the story ends, with a new name, Israel, and a, a story that implies it has something to do with us because, well, ever since there's been that phrase, the children of Israel. Now, if you were in Sunday school and you didn't skip, my hunch is the very next thing that followed that story was, and boys and girls, the moral of the story is, and then they filled in the blank which is a real shame because Old Testament stories are not about morals. They're not Aesop's fables. They're more like mirrors. You get in big trouble if you read the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and tell anybody, be like them. Because as sure as you say it this week, next week you'll have to say, oops, oops, I take it back. Don't be like them. We read their stories because we see ourselves in their stories. On the plane ride home from Israel, Ellie and I talked about the stories in Genesis, but we also talked about the stories about the stories in Genesis. Did you catch that? They're called Midrash. It's not contagious, by the way. Midrash is a Hebrew expression about stories that rabbis tell. Down through the centuries, as rabbis wrestled with stories in the Bible, they started making up stories about the stories just as a way to wrestle with it. Like, like for instance, in the ark story, the animals try to figure out where God can be found. And the elephant says, well, God's big and I'm big, I'll go find God. The elephant doesn't find God. The eagle says, no, God lives high up, and I soar high. I'll go find God, and the eagle doesn't find God. And then the fish say, ah, you got it all wrong. God's like the water everywhere. And sure enough, the fish find God, and the God decides in the flood that two animals of each will be saved except all the fish. It's a midrash. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're poignant, but you get the idea. You wrestle with it. The thing about a midrash, two things. One, it affirms the power of story. And the second, it acknowledges mystery. If you ask me what a story means and I tell you a story, well, we're still kind of wrestling. There are things if, in this story that are not clear. If after the reading you said, huh, welcome to the text. Like, for instance, what does this word Israel mean? Some say it means one who wrestles with God, and others say, no, no, no. You actually could translate it the God who wrestles with us. It is God, after all, who jumps Jacob in the middle of the night. Or is it? The writer of this text keeps calling him the man, and Jacob says, nope, it was God. I saw him face to face, but are you going to take Jacob's word? You see the ambiguity? 
one thing that seems clear to me is that the wrestling with this stranger, this God or this ambassador from God, it, it is symbolic of the wrestling that Jacob has done all of his life with others. This is not some generic, just wrestling with God. This is, um, this is waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and remembering that shady business deal, remembering the affair, remembering the poisonous word that you spoke to your teenager or the word you never gave to your elderly parent who was dying. It's remembering and wrestling and recognizing we don't always live the way God wants. But it's still hard. I mean, it's still hard to relate. I don't, I don't know if you can relate to his wrestling. I'm grateful to Flannery O'Connor. She was the great Southern writer of the 20th century who told her own midrash on the Jacobs story. It's about a woman in the South named Ruby Turpin, who's a large woman and, and in whose presence everyone becomes smaller. She's really good at that. In fact, Ruby has a gift. Late at night when she's lying in bed and going to sleep, she kind of arranges humanity in this, this chart. You know, like at the bottom are the blacks, and then the white trash, and then the people like her and Claude that have a, a home, and, and then people with the bigger homes. But her system kind of breaks down because some of the blacks in town have a big home. And, but, you know, she's trying to put it together. Well, in this story, Ruby and Claude have gone to, gone to the doctor's office. Claude's got something wrong with his foot. And so the whole thing takes place in the waiting room. They're seated, seated in that circle. And there's just a handful of people. But there's only one other stylish lady like herself. And so Ruby talks to her. And while they're talking, the whole time they're talking, this girl, college-age girl, keeps giving Ruby the evil eye. And then when Ruby finishes a speech that goes something like this, well, I just thank God that I wasn't born into this world like some lunatics and losers. That's when the girl hurls her textbook and hits Ruby in the forehead and knocks her to the ground and straddles her in front of everyone else and says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Not your normal day in the waiting room. Later that afternoon, Ruby takes a nap back at home and then walks out to the hog pen. She and Claude raise pigs. And while she's at the hog pen, she speaks aloud words addressed to God. What do you send me a message like that for? How, how am I saved and from hell? How am I like these pigs? I do for the church and all. And then, and then Ruby has kind of a vision. She looks off, and there where the sun is setting, she sees this kind of bank of clouds intersecting it, and one of them looks like a ramp. Looks like you could walk up this ramp of clouds to heaven. And that's when she has the vision. She sees people rumbling toward heaven. Blacks first, then the white trash, and bringing up the rear people like herself. And Ruby, she gets it. She's changed. Maybe. I mean, maybe. 
Jacob, he gets a new name, but is he new? Is he still the same old Jacob, or does he have some new identity? I love the way it ends, though. It's not sunset. It's sunrise. It's a new day. And, and he's limping, but blessed. Blessed, but limping. That just sounds so familiar to me. Blessed and limping. I learned this week that sometimes in schools, Jewish children learn about Midrash by making up their own. So they'll read the Noah story or the Jacob story, and then the kids get to make up their own story, their own Midrash to tell. And maybe it's totally made up, or maybe it's one from their own life. And they just set it next to the biblical story. That just seems like such a great idea. What story from your own life would you dare to put next to this one?